Hi. So today I have two quotes for you. A thought was a feeling long before it became a thought. Konstantin Stanislavski. And our second quote for tonight. Talking about acting is hard because talking about tends to make us generalize and generalization conceals the uniqueness of things. Good acting is always specific. Declan Donnellan. Hi, my name is Diego Casasnovas, and this is Let's Talk Acting. Hi, guys. Thank you for joining us again for episode number three. Uh, before we start this episode, uh, and before we introduce our special guest for tonight, I want to say thank you to everyone that has taken the time to listen to our last previews, uh, our last two previous episodes. Uh, we're almost hitting the 500 mark. I can't believe almost 500 of you are listening to my voice at home um, and are looking for me to learn more about acting. I am truly, truly thankful for each and every one out there that have, you know, tuned in to any of the two previous episodes. So thank you. Thank you very, very much. So last week I didn't um, give you a preview of what we were going to talk tonight. So uh, tonight we are going uh, to Russia. We are going to talk a little bit about uh, one of uh, Stanislavski's uh, last creations uh, before he died. Uh, our wonderful active analysis. Um, surprisingly, this is not a method that is taught in most conservatories here in the United States. Um, I don't know why, because whenever I learned active analysis, it changed my acting and it changed my approach to acting. And for that, I have a very, very, very special guest tonight that's going to help us um, understand a little bit more about what active analysis is and what's its purpose. And for that, I want to introduce the amazing... Cotter Smith. Hi, Cotter. How are you? Hello, Diego. How are you? I'm doing just fine. Thank you. Um, so, Cotter, uh, please introduce yourself. Give us uh, a brief summary of who Cotter is. <laughs> oh, let's be brief. Um, I'm um, an actor and a teacher. I've been doing this for decades. I love what I do. I began many, many years ago. Uh, my first mentor, my first serious mentor was Stella Adler, hmm. um, which interestingly enough, I, I had no idea then, but connected me to Stanislavski. Uh, and now 40 years later, I am teaching active analysis, which is something that Stanislavski came to at the end of his life. Um, I've had a long, wonderful life in the arts as an actor and a teacher. And I, at this stage of my life, am um, focused mainly on giving back. So the teaching is an important part of my, my process. Uh, so uh, before we jump into the rapid uh, fire questions, um, Cotter, tell us more about a little background uh, of yourself before you got into acting. Uh, what was your training? And give us some credits. I know you've done Broadway, off Broadway, film, TV. So give uh, give them, give the listeners a little, you know, sneak peek about how a very, very successful career you've had. Oh, I'll do a quick run through. I mean, I started, as I say, in the seventies, uh, way back in the age of the dinosaurs, <laughs> in New York studying and working uh, in the theater, which is what I really mostly wanted to do. Um, I, in uh, 1979, was cast in a play called A Soldier's Play with the Negro Ensemble Company. 
<clears throat> with a young Denzel Washington and Samuel L. Jackson uh, in a play that went on to win the Pulitzer Prize and changed my career. Uh, took me to Los Angeles and I began to be able to do television and film. Um, I have continued to do theater and gone back to New York for that. I have done, I, I've been very, very fortunate in my life. Um, <clears throat> I now live in Pittsburgh, which is a huge surprise to me, but I came here to do a Netflix series with David Fincher called Mindhunter, um, which was a highlight of my um, acting experience. And my wife and I decided to stay here. Uh, before I came here, I was the um, department head of the MFA acting program at the New School for Drama in New York. Uh, and now I continue my teaching here in Pittsburgh at Point Park University, where I met Diego and at Carnegie Mellon. Uh, and I also teach workshops and uh, wherever I can. Um, that's just a nutshell um, of my life. Uh, I also want to add to that that Cotter was um, part of the off-Broadway company and the original uh Broadway cast of one of my favorite plays, The Next Fall. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Uh, Next Fall was, oh boy, that was 10 years ago. Um, a wonderful play that we took. Seemingly, it was just a little play that we would do for a few weeks. It ran off Broadway for six months and then moved to Broadway and was nominated for the best American play of the year. Um, it's a really wonderful piece. Uh, and again, it was a, one of those moments as an actor with script and the cast and the story that was a synthesis of why I love being an actor. I, um, I was there when you guys did the reading for your 10 year anniversary and <laughs> it was just beautiful. It was just beautiful. Um, it was very much needed and especially the times where we are at right now. So just wanted to, you know, poke that in because definitely next next fall is one of my favorite plays. And you introduced me to it when we were uh, when you were my professor sophomore year. Yes. So thank yes. you. Uh, so there you guys have it. The amazing uh, Carter Smith film, TV. Oh, Carter, you forgot to mention you were in the X-Men movie. Is that correct? Yeah, I was the... Uh, president in uh, X2. Isn't just isn't that amazing? Uh, film, TV, Broadway, off Broadway, uh, and but what is most shockingly about uh, Carter when I have her uh, had him as a professor is how humble he is, even though he's had such a successful successful career, and he's still working. He's still working. Don't forget that. He's still working, getting those credits in. And um, also how much he loves the craft. Uh, it's it's always uh, hard, heartwarming when you meet people like Cotter. And I'm just thankful that I can say that I was his student. So thank you, Cotter. Um, so now we're going to move to a little segment that we did uh, last episode. Uh, that we I want it, it turned out really well, so I want to do it again with you. It's called a uh, rapid fire question. So I'm gonna ask you some questions, uh, some non-related to theater, some theater-related questions. But the main point is to answer the questions with the first thing that comes into your mind. Is that is that something you think you can do, Cotter? Sure. Let's do it. Okay. Cutter, what's your go-to breakfast? I do it every morning. I have yogurt with fruit and an English muffin and coffee. Ooh, that sounds so delicious. What's it your is. favorite color, Cutter? Blue. What's your favorite season? Spring. Uh, coffee or tea? Coffee. What's your favorite curse word? Fuck. Mm. That nice fricative, you know, it goes with everything. Is that? Uh, what's a play that you love? 
That is such a hard question. There are so <laughs> many plays that I love. So what's the first play that comes into your mind when someone asks you this question? It doesn't have to be the, the play that you love the most, but the, the first, first one that comes... The first one that popped up for me was Hamlet. Hamlet? Ooh. Uh, what's a play that you're not quite fond of? That's an even harder question. <laughs> so, uh, you know, like like in the in the last question, the first thing that comes into your mind, you know, like a play that's like, oh, it's not well, that I don't hate it. It's just that it's not. Nothing popped into my mind. So that's really interesting. So nothing. Hmm. Um, nothing. Uh, not, not that I love all plays, but my mind just doesn't go that way, I guess. I don't. Hmm. I, I'm not. A, no, I don't have a critical no, I have nothing bad to say about any play off the top of my head. I could think about it and come up with something, but no, nothing off the top of my head. Interesting. Uh, what's an who, uh, Who's an actor that you are a fan of, like a really fan of? Again, this is a question I get all the time. There are so many that that it's almost impossible for me to answer the question uh, with, a, with a single person. Um they're just too many. Uh, um, no okay, so let's uh, let me change the question a little bit. Who's an actor that you've worked with that you've been in awe of how not just how great of an actor he is, but even as a human being? Like, what? Who's an actor that you and you've worked with great actors, even like famous actors? So, uh, who's the person that comes into your head? Well, that's the question th th that you just asked. I said Meryl Streep, and that's yes. When I I was fortunate enough to to work on a play with Meryl Streep. And I was in awe of her, not only as an actor, but as a human being, as a, as a absolutely down to earth, real connected human being. She's a, she is as gifted as a human as she is as an actor. Uh, what was the play that you worked in with Meryl Streep? American Daughter by Wendy Wasserstein. American Daughter? Mm -hmm. hmm. She actually hypnotized me on stage. Wow. It was the... a moment I was so taken with what she was doing that I couldn't respond. Not I everyone can say that, huh? I was silent and realized that I was actually in the play and I had to keep speaking. It was a difficult moment. The power of acting, the power of Meryl Strip. Power of her acting. Uh, so we're gonna ask the same question, but in the other way. What's an actor that you've worked with that you've been? Oh, oh, it's not you know, it's not his acting. It's just you know, uh you know, an actor you've worked with that you're not quite fond of. I don't go there. I know that's that's um, family business. I don't talk about that. And that's fair enough. Yeah. Your favorite Meryl Streep movie? There's so many that it's insane. Um, Sophie's Choice. Oh. You can never go there with wrong with Sophie's Choice. Yeah. Okay, that's the end of our rapid fire questions. So you can see, uh, it's I I love rapid fire questions. Just so fun to me to do. Okay, uh, Carter, let's jump into active analysis, shall we? Sure. Uh, so before we actually talk what active analysis is, um, can we talk a little bit about uh, the background before active analysis? Uh, we know that um, this was at the end of Stanislavski's career, uh, but can, we, can you give us a brief summary of what happened that led Stanislavski to be able to do this or create this, if you shall? Sure. Um, again, in a nutshell, um, he created this process, which he called active analysis, Destibene Analyse in the Russian, during the last five years of his life, when he was not only quite old, late 70s, but very ill. And even so, he was still dedicated to his lifelong search to finding the most effective way to put truth on stage. And he was still dissatisfied 
with what he had found. He, of course, as we know, he was the founder of modern American actor training. Eastern and Western world, he is the man. There isn't a theater training program, I, I dare say almost anywhere, that doesn't somehow reference Stanislavski. But he never stopped perfecting his search. He came at a certain point to become troubled, and this is all handed down, this, this information, by how long it was taking him to discover what he called the essence of his actors during the rehearsal process. And unlike what many directors would do, instead of blaming his actors, he felt that that was his own fault. And that the reason for it was that perhaps he was tying his actors to the table for too long, doing extensive text analysis for so long that he trapped his actors in their head. So he decided at that point to flip it and to, to take everything that he had created and try to see if he had did the exact opposite what would happen. And this is hence his creation of what he ultimately called active analysis, which was to not deal with the text immediately, but to step away from the text and to explore the text energetically. And I'll get into that a little bit later. But Diego mentioned that oddly enough, the world is not as familiar with this process as it could be. And there's a, that's a quite sad story. Unfortunately for all of us, he created this work during the time of Joseph Stalin. And it was during Stalin's chillingly named Great Purge, which was a very serious suppression of artistic expression. Um, particularly that of a world famous Russian theater director who was somehow seemingly to them contradicting what he had been teaching before. And he was world renowned. His books were selling incredibly well. Um, Stalin was not in any way enamored of this process. It was too freeing, which as I talk about it later, you'll see it is about freeing the actor. The Soviet way was not to free the actor. So Stanislavski was put under house arrest. Newspapers were told that he was too old and too ill to go out. He was confined to his home for the last years of his life and he was not allowed to return to the Moscow Art Theater, which he had founded decades ago, his artistic home for decades. And even so, he still continued to work in secret, under censorship, in private, with a small group of actors, finding and refining this new concept that he was committed to, which actually remained virtually unknown for decades until the end of Stalin's tyrannical reign. And luckily for us, he had an assistant named Maria Knebel, and I'll try to make this short, I know it's a long story, who kept his experiments alive by writing down everything this man said, taught it secretly after he passed away, spread the word, kept it going uh, for a very, very long time. It therefore became and still is a cornerstone training program in Russia and throughout Eastern Europe. However, it unfortunately remains very little known in the United States. That's partly because of the predominance of the method, our system based on Stanislavski's early work, but more so it's because there is very little translation of Maria Knebel's work. It is coming, it will be here soon, and I predict in five or 10 years, active analysis will be a very common actor training. I learned it, and again, I'll do this briefly, but when I was at the new school, my dean changed my life by introducing me to a man who had been studying in St. Petersburg. His name is David Chambers, and he had been studying active analysis. I had never heard of it. David mentored me came to my classes at the new school, taught me how to teach this, changed my life not only as a teacher, but as an actor, and completely upended my, my life um, professionally. That's how much I am committed to active analysis as what I think is just a life-changing concept for 
actors, directors, and teachers. Um, so that's the background, Diego. Uh, I could go further into, the, I'll let you where you want to go next so I could go into the specifics of the process, but that's sort of the background of how it got born initially. Uh, yes, we'll, we, we will jump uh, into active analysis, the specifics, and you know we'll talk about etudes and everything in a second. Um, I just, uh, I, will, I have a question about the background, and yeah. I want you to uh, explain to our listeners um, Stanislav, uh, we will have an episode about uh, Stanislavski's method and everything, but is it true? Uh, you know, a lot of people say say it, but uh, does active analysis contradicts the Stanislavski's method, the acting method, what we know? Not according to Stanislavski. Not according to him? No. Okay. There are those who say that it does. Stanislavski says that it is a natural outgrowth of everything that he believed mm -hmm. and does not contradict any of the of the previous work because we work was based on his system of actions actors finding what the action to the scene is so it's connect very connected to active analysis mm -hmm. he became much more specific about Honestly, what I think happened to him was that he, and this is something that Maria Knebel said, he believed that, that something terrible had happened to the actor in the theater community in that, in the, the power structure of the theater with the writer, the director, and the actor, that somehow the actor had slipped into a secondary position, that the writer and the director had taken over and the actor was becoming a puppet saying what the writer wrote and doing what the director said to do. Stanislavski had a great respect and love for what he said is the gift that the actor brings into the room that neither the director nor the writer can bring. And that was the actor's initial impulse and instinct upon reading a new piece of material. He believed that the actor had a creative instinct and impulse that came just from the fact of their talent as an actor that needed to be explored before they were sat at a table and told to read the text. That's the birth of active analysis. And I know in in class you said that you say that um, active analysis is the actor's uh, first draft or rough draft. Um, why do you say that? That is. Stanislavski's phrase. Oh, his I'm sorry. Phrase, yes. You, you, why does Stanislavski says that this method, active analysis, uh, is the actor's rough draft? Again, to, to repeat, Stanislavski believed that if an actor, he came to believe that when the actor memorizes a text immediately by rote, they are thereby deprived of achieving a more profound understanding of the subtext. And one of the great lines, and I will, I have a number of lines from Stanislavski that are my stepping stones through this process. And one of them is language is the final physical action, not the first. He came to believe that you cannot start with the language because it's not about what the actor is saying, it's about what the actor is doing. And if you believe in what he's talking about, and you will, you will see how it comes, it comes down to a very um, almost Zen-like understanding that the actor understands something unconsciously and subconsciously about a creative piece of work that can only be found if they are allowed to explore it energetically. Another quote from him is that the life of the body, not the mind, should be the starting point for the actor. And as I get into what the exercises are, you'll understand he created a simple series of exercises, stunningly simple and yet radically helpful for the actor 
to get out of their head and into their heart. Well, I think that's enough background on active analysis. I'm sure our listeners are very intrigued to know what this system is. So I'll let you, do you, Carter, explain to us how active analysis works. Okay, so as I said, he created uh, a series of exercises. He called etudes after the French word for study, etude which he took from the French Impressionist painters who did etudes before they did their master paintings, which were just quick sketches, quick sketches of what the master plan might ultimately be. And he created these very simple etudes, which allowed the actor to, as I said earlier, step away from the text and study the story of a play or a film, it doesn't have to be a play, without learning the words. Um, paradoxically, he believed that using this technique would make it easier for them to ultimately illuminate the script. He also believed that acting is first and foremost an exchange of energy, not an exchange of words, so that the first explorations had to be electric and energetic exchanges between the actors, not using any words, but simply discovering what they're trying to do to each other rather than what they're saying to each other. Another of his great comments, and you can feel his sense of humor in this, he used to say, we can read the play today and we can perform it tomorrow. I think he was being facetious a bit, but I understand what he meant. He meant that an actor can read a play and understand what it is and get up and tell the story. He believed that the actor's goal in the process of studying a piece was to find the poetic heart of the text. So the first etude, and again, these are done in small pieces. A scene is taken from the play, a scene from the first act of the play, and the actors will read the scene. But rather than sitting and studying the words and deciding what they might do with those words, they then put the text away and stand on the stage together with no script. He had a dictum, no scripts on stage ever. You are allowed to do a little text analysis before you go on stage. But once you go on stage, no looking at pages of paper, looking only at your partners. The first etude is a silent exploration of the scene, energetically, with only two rules. One, you cannot take your eyes off your partner. And the second rule is you must keep moving. And you are to explore the scene almost like children in a playground, not actors exploring a scene. It's more of an imagistic exploration of what is happening in this moment. Again, to use another Stanislavski quote, uh, and this may be my most favorite of all, he said, an actor can never know too little. Mm -hmm. I find that a very freeing thing for actors who, for the most part, worry that they don't know enough, and that's part of what blocks them. Mm -hmm. And what he meant by that was that in the moment of not knowing is the magic. Instead of, in the moment of not knowing, looking to your page to figure out what it is you're supposed to say, just look at your partner. And having read the scene, what are you thinking happens next? What are you feeling next? Hmm. So etudes are done. So sticking with just the first etude. Mm -hmm. All etudes are done by trial and error. There's no bell to ring. There's no, another great quote from his, there's no such thing as a bad etude because you will find something. All we're doing is trying to find something. In the first etude, after the actors explore this event, silently and energetically together, they then return to the text and they read the text again and they discuss what they found, where they went in the right direction, where maybe they went a different way, and then they repeat. 
So that's the first etude. It can be done many, many times. It can be done many different ways. The, you can direct it to let's explore the scene, the anger in the scene this time. Let's explore the love in the scene the next time. The so, second day. So Cotter, uh, before we move to the second etude, uh, when we read with our partner uh, the chunk of the scene, is that what is known as a cold read? Or have you done some previous texts where before jumping into the etude? That's a cold read. That's a first read. And you you uh, it, you said that you read it without doing any you know analysis or anything, but in that first read, what is the actor looking for? Is it a connection between the scene partner while saying lines? Is yes. it just to first, get a a sense of you know what they're gonna do? Can you tell us a little bit more about that? I try to steer away from the term cold read because it's so. Um, it sounds so disconnected, mm -hmm. more of a warm read. Yeah. It's mm -hmm. two actors reading these words for the first time to each other. And just all they're trying to do at that point is trying to figure out what they're receiving mm -hmm. and what they're sending out. What is this exchange between these two people about? Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, definitely trying to understand the psychology of it yet, just reading the words, looking in each other's eyes, and reading it and then putting it down and playing with that idea. And when, oh, so, so just movement, no words, no sound, no anything. Is the movement, uh, is it being, uh, is it more of a, you know, a abstract movement? Is it more like, you know, straight, you know, archetypes like Chekhov says, or what kind of movement are we exploring or trying to do in this first etude? The actors are exploring in the first etude whatever their initial impulses are. Mm -hmm. However, they are compelled to impact their partner. And yes, it's more impressionistic than realistic. Mm -hmm. More along the lines of, for those who've studied theater training, Michael Chekhov's psychological gestures. Mm -hmm. It's not a realistic scene. It's more like children in a playground. Children in a playground are as expressive and unrealistic as we can imagine and very creative. And when you're doing the etude, uh, Cotter, is your focus on your partner or on yourself? Partner, always. Always the partner? Everything we get comes from the partner. Mm -hmm. Not about making a decision or trying to think up something clever to say or to do. It's about what am I receiving from my partner and how does that make me respond? Mm -hmm. So to give a little overview now to move along, there are what Stanislavski does is very slowly does he introduce the text. So the first etude is silent. He then allows you to use expressive sound, similar to the first etude, but with expressive sound. So you can now make noise, but you can't speak. He then allows you to use a few key words from the scene that you select and a few key phrases from the writer's words that you select. But again, with no worry of memorizing or worrying about what the story is. Mm. You are continuing to explore the scene little by little with pieces of the text. The next step of the 32 is that you may now speak and you may speak fully, but you can only speak in your own words. You can't use the words of the author. And this is where he came up with the phrase, the actor's rough draft, which you just referenced, Diego. Mm -hmm. He believed that since the writer had many opportunities to write rough drafts of this play, It was very important for the actor to have the opportunity to write their own rough drafts. And the way he put it was that the actor can then fill in all the empty spaces between the words with their own sensibility. So that instead of just learning the words mechanically and then speaking them to their partner, they are 
learning the story with their own heart, their own sensibilities. Stanislavski also always said, always begin as an actor exploring a piece with yourself because it's all you've got. I'm gonna read a little quick thing from Stanislavski because it's so beautiful. Never lose yourself on the stage, he wrote. Always act in your own person because the moment you lose yourself on the stage marks the departure from truly living the part. And it is the beginning of false acting. Hmm. Never allow yourself any exception to the rule of using your own feelings because when you break that rule, it's the equivalent of killing the character you are portraying because you deprive that character of a palpitating living human soul, which is the source of his life. Hmm. Very Russian, very passionate, but very true. His entire search was to make sure the actor is taking the essence of their, and he so loved actors and felt that they had this special gift, their soul, their spirit, their heart, and moving that into the character. Instead of just learning the words and moving forward, not doing that until you had infused the character with your spirit. I know having done, done many, many plays in my life, before I learned active analysis, I would learn the words and great work has been done for generations. And I'm not, the old ways are absolutely workable and useful. This is just another technique that I find magical. I know that a month or two into a run, I would all of a sudden feel like I got it and I had it and, and my spirit had joined with the words and joined with the cast and joined with the company and we took off. Stanislavski saying, you can do that on the first day. You don't have to wait a month to catch up with that. It can all happen up front with this new process. That was his theory. So we've talked about um, etudes uh, in a scene with a scene partner uh, exploring together what the scene is uh, beyond what is written in the play or in whatever you are a tuning for is this something that someone can do on their own in yes. a monologue and yes. how does the dynamic or the a2 change when you're doing it on yourself or alone i mean uh with a piece with a text that's only you meaning a monologue or a soliloquy or whatever thanks to the pandemic i'm doing quite a lot of this now with my classes hmm. since my, what I said to them when I began was since you are locked in your rooms alone, let's take advantage of that because there are many, many times when you have to work alone as an actor, mm -hmm. when you're preparing an audition, when you're working at home on your own. So we're working with monologues and they are doing the monologues with etudes. And it's fascinating. Um, it's the same process. It's exactly the same process working the same etudes, but solo with an imaginary partner. One of the great things about, this is a sideline, but one of the great things about etudes to me, and again, I, I, personally, I always felt in rehearsal uh, a pressure and a discomfort about not doing it right and not having uh, the, the director was watching and we weren't getting it. And whether we didn't know the lines or we didn't understand the play, there was always this, um, it wasn't free enough for us to really fly, I felt. And I think Stanislavski's genius is his understanding that the only way creativity can really blossom is in a room that is free where there's no fear and there's no worry about doing the wrong thing. Etudes aren't about precision. Etudes are really about mistakes. Etudes are about try anything, try whatever comes into your head. The point of the etude is really, and, and this was actually put by a Russian theater writer 
was describing active analysis, that the etude system is, what Stanislavski did was he discovered a conscious path for the actor to tap into the unconscious, which is what we need to do as actors. We need to tap into the unconscious. And it's very hard to do if what you're doing is trying to learn words. This process allows you to free yourself from the burden of learning the words and allow your subconscious and your unconscious to do all the work where you find, and Diego, you know this, but I have found, I've been teaching this now for five years, the discoveries that are made with this process are consistently surprising, unexpected, um, and illuminating. And actors so often when they come out of an etude say, I don't know where that came from. I don't know what, I don't know how I found that. And the way they found it was that they allowed their unconscious to appear instead of being so concerned about doing it wrong, they released the unconscious to play. That I think is, to me, one of the great gifts of the etude process. Uh, I, uh, I took your class, uh, I think two years now, something like, yeah, a year and a half ago. And uh, I remember uh, we were nine. And uh, there was always a three-person etude, which was yeah. always fun, because uh, yeah. you know, you're you know you're used to making doing etudes with another person, so you put your entire energy and focus into that other person. But when another person came in, it was always fascinating the things that you found while doing a three-person scene. And I remember I did um, Siegel. Uh, the play by uh, Anton Chekhov. And I remember I did this with um, two other great actresses from my class. And uh, the things that we found while doing that etude, you could have it just, it's weird to think that you could have found that while doing text work and not doing this active analysis. So, um, so yes, I do agree when you say that the things that ones discover when doing this uh, are surprisingly, but they are almost ninety nine percent surprisingly for the better, you know. And uh, and at times, most of the times, that's something that you use in your performance in your scene work, and you know, even in you know in a in in, in a performance. So yes. Now, Stanislavski actually was quoted as saying that he was happily surprised that so many discoveries found by actors in the very first etude were moments that should be in the production, mm -hmm. that are absolutely perfect for the production. I directed a, a play, um, Orphans by Lyle Kessler, um, I actually didn't direct it. I was the active analysis coach. And these were all people from my workshops, the director and the actors. And I remember a week into rehearsal, we were doing all the etudes and the director said to me, I feel like I'm not doing anything. I'm just watching the actors. And I said, that's right, you are. That is what we're doing right now. We're watching the actors. And from that, you will then construct what worked and what didn't and what's best. But Stanislavski's respect for the actor extended to the point where he would tell his directors, don't tell your actors what you think the play is about. Let your actors show you what they think the play is about and you will learn something you didn't know. That kind of um, respect for acting to me from a director is very moving uh, and very uh, empowering and bears fruit with the right actors in the right situation, uh, it, the results are quite beautiful and astonishing. So I want uh, to ask you as an actor, when doing this, uh, you know, cause it's something, especially here in the States that it's not something that 
many actors are familiar with and they don't teach it in as they should in a lot of places uh when you dive in into this work for the first time what is something that you need to have in order to make this uh, a productive etude or a productive uh you know work uh what is something that you as an actor needs in order to be able to do this etude the only thing the actor needs for an etude is to be open and honest And the only incorrect thing to do uh, in an etude is to plan ahead and decide what you're going to do. The important thing to do is to let go and not know what you're going to do and see what happens. Hmm. It's a little like jumping out of an airplane. You have to trust that there's a parachute and you have to jump. I like that. So we've talked about the background of active analysis. We've talked a little bit about Stanislavski and everything he believed. Uh, we talked about uh, the etudes. Uh, but I want to talk a little bit more about how you teach the etudes. And also, uh, I'll ask the question after, but you kind of divided one of the etudes. Is that correct, Cotter? It depends on the group, but I will, with a very, very advanced group, I move more quickly with new people. I break it down. Sometimes I'll put the expressive sound and the words and the phrases into one etude. Sometimes I'll do just the sound. It, it depends on the group. Um, even Stanislavski said, this is a very supple process. It's not a dogma. Uh, he said, I have created a process where people can be free enough to really access their creativity. So, you know, it depends on on the day and the piece and the people, uh, how, how I, it, it's very much of an improvisation, even as a teacher and, and a director. I remember when I was uh, taking your class, Cotter, uh, we, what, what we, we did, we broke it down in, uh, A2 number one, two, 2.5, and then three. Yeah. And then I remember when we were transitioning to, uh, that's me talking to myself as an actor. When I was transitioning from A2 one to A2 two to 2.5, at first, I remember that I could use what I gained from the A2 before, from the previous A2, and then keep exploring, the, exploring it in the next A2. And when I started, I remember that I was so eager to get to the sounds and to the words because I felt uh, I, I felt trapped in the first etude. Mm -hmm. But then as the semester went on and we finished the semester, I found myself doing more movement and less sound and words when we actually, uh, you know, when we actually started, you know, getting working more at the end so i always fa uh, find it fascinating how we as we as an actor as actors uh use words and sounds as a shield mm -hmm. to get us from using our body into the storytelling uh, yeah have you experienced a lot of that as your years in teaching yes absolutely and everybody's different there are some actors who love being silent and don't like it when they have to speak There's others who hate being silent and can't wait to speak. We're all different. Everybody has a different uh, method. But again, Stanislavski created this, and I repeat, surprisingly simple stepping stone that anybody can use. It's not, a, it's not rocket science that allows the actor to stay out of their head. I, I think the most difficult thing for us as actors is to stay out of our head and in the moment. Mm. There are so many distractions. Mm -hmm. There's an audience, there's lights, there are cameras, there whatever, whether it's film or TV, there's so many distractions. How do you find us a, a quiet moment where you are there? I mean, that's, a, that's what we want as actors. This is a very helpful process to do that. I truly agree. Uh, Now, Cotter, 
I, you, like, I'm sorry, like you said, uh, you've been working and teaching this for a couple of years now. Uh, and as you get new groups and new actors, uh, you kind of uh, start knowing how to approach different things and how to make people understand this active analysis um, technique and whatnot. Uh, you added a fourth etude. Is that correct? Yeah. What was the service or the purpose of this fourth etude? The final etude of doing the scene in your own words. In Russia, of course, they rehearse for a year, unlike four weeks here. So after doing that third etude in their own words, they will do that for months and months and months. And then the next etude is to do the scene with the writer's words. I realized that working as quickly as we're working, the actors aren't ready to do it in the words of the writer yet because they haven't assimilated them. So I added this, what's turned out to be a really fun and helpful etude, which is sort of a half and half where you have a music stand with your script there And as much as you know of the scene, you do away from the text. And when you don't know what to say, you go to the text. So you sort of toggle back and forth between the text and off text, almost like a, you know, a safe base. And then when you feel comfortable, you go off. And it's become a really um, creative neutral space between having the text and allowing yourself to go away from it. And do you use that uh, approach while doing contemporary text, uh, classical text, or do you use it whenever it's needed? It's all the same. It's all the same. Yeah. Stanislavski created this, um, and he only did it, I mean, it was a very short time before he passed away. He did it with Shakespeare, Moliere, and Chekhov. Mm. That was where he created this particular process. Um It's really wonderful for Shakespeare. How, well, I mean, I don't, uh, I don't think it's different, but how do you approach an active analysis or a, an etude with Shakespeare when Shakespeare is all about the words? Exactly the same way. It's very freeing, especially, I think, for American actors who many of whom are daunted by the difficulty of the language, the complexity of the language, the poetry of the language, not to have to worry about the language, to explore the story through several etudes so that before they even get to the point of having to deal with the language, they already know. Again, you do these etudes enough so that, as Stanislavski said, with each successive etude, you are in an increasingly specific circumstance of the scene. You get closer and closer to, there is text analysis, as I said earlier, between each etude. When you're not free and on stage, you go back to your text. I haven't mentioned some of the text analysis where you begin to break down what the events are in the scene and you title the events and you learn exactly what the structure of the scene is so that you are doing your etudes in linear order of the exact scene. So you can, eventually do the first etude of an entire act of a play beat by beat silently following the exact story but not speaking you can do it with keywords and key phrases through the entire act just with keywords and key phrases so that by the time you are and the entire time you're doing this you're reading the play Stanislavski said keep reading the play just don't memorize it just keep reading it it will go in his theory and I have seen that this actually works, is that the lines come naturally. They just, you, it's like you've tilled the soil, so they go in. They just, you don't have to cram them in. They just are assimilated. So with Shakespeare, it's a release from the difficulty of the language to learn what Romeo and Juliet are doing to and with each other learning the exact structure of each moment that they have before they have to worry about this complex poetry that they must speak on top of mm -hmm. it all. 
and then adding that when they're ready for it. I love that. I, I've actually uh, used a lot of active analysis uh, in classes, and I did uh, last semester. I did uh, "It's a Wonderful Life," uh, and I also etuded uh, my for my character. And I always uh, find when I etude, I the I feel like the more s- the more open, yes, I am. But the more specific I am with my openness, the more I find. What I mean to say is that the more I'm, uh, I'm the, I, I always try to focus on something when I'm tooting. Like you said uh, previously, I was like, oh, let's focus on the anger. Let's focus on this. Let's focus on that. Uh, instead of just doing a plain etude. I mean, I've already gotten a class with you, uh, uh, Cotter, so I know a little bit more about etuding but what is your uh what can you say to those that are now going to start etuding especially in the uh current environment you know that we are in the times of the pandemic in the that they are right now with the invisible partner how can they keep themselves in it without having that scene partner next to them it's a little more difficult obviously because a scene partner is a great safe space but all acting is a bit of a zen magic trick mm-hmm. um, so it just takes focus it just takes allowing yourself to be to be present and to know what you're looking for Hmm. Well, uh, I think that covers, in a nutshell, what active analysis is. I encourage everyone that if, you know, after the pandemic, uh, if they can take a workshop on active analysis, uh, take classes on active analysis, Like I said, it has changed my acting. And I'm pretty sure it has changed your acting as well, Carter. Isn't that right? Oh, absolutely. Uh, and it's always a fun thing to have in your back pocket. It makes the whole process a little bit more fun. That's so, actually a Stanislavski line as well. He said to his group one day, apparently, according to Maria Canevel. And he said, the other thing I realized that I didn't expect is that this is just a hell of a lot more fun than sitting at a table for two weeks. Mm-hmm. And it is. There is a great sense of, well, I'll end with this. He called the etudes joyous explorations. And that really sums it up for mm-hmm. me. Yeah, They are joyous explorations. The, the fun. I, I always remember the second or third week of rehearsals used to be absolute torture for me. And often for everybody, when you just think, what were, what were we thinking? We'll never get there. It, we're, we're in hell. We're, none of us know anything. We don't know what we're doing. Mm-hmm. That doesn't happen with this process. It's structured in a way that um, prevents that depressive state about what we don't know, because it's only about what we do know. Well, before we finish up uh i posted on our social medias uh the last two days uh for people to uh ask some questions uh so you can give them uh, give them some little advice so uh one of the questions was uh do you remember an etude that changed your perspective on active analysis? If you do, what was it? I was doing a production of Shakespeare's The Tempest, uh, Shakespeare in the Park, the public theater in New York City. Um, And I was playing Antonio. 
and I was miserable because at one point uh, at the end of the play, um, for those of you who know the play, Pros I have usurped the crown from Prospero and I'm wearing the crown and Prospero needs the crown. And it's, uh, I was miserable because in the play, Prospero comes to me and asks for the crown and I give him the crown and he moves away. And Antonio has 20 more minutes on stage with nothing to say. And I was a miserable actor standing on stage, not knowing what I was doing there, why I was still there, what I was, what was the point of my still being there while everything was going on around me and I had nothing to do. And I asked the director, what, what, am, I, what am I supposed to be doing? And he said, I don't know. <laughs> Uh, and I said, can I leave? And he said, no, you can't leave. Shakespeare doesn't have you leave. So I don't know. So one day, uh, and I was just new to etudes. And I obviously wasn't going to stop the rehearsal and tell everybody that, about etudes. But when I was approached, Sam Waterston was playing Prospero. Wonderful, Sam Waterston. And he asked me for the crown. And instead of giving it to him in this rehearsal, I stepped away and I didn't give it to him. And he looked at me like, I was crazy <laughs> and said, give me, give it, give me the crown. I said, no, 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 no. And I asked the director if we could play. And he said, yes. So Sam then continued to do the rest of the 20 minutes of the play dealing with everybody else, but he never took his eyes off me because I still had the crown. And instead of me standing there with nothing to do, I was there still connected with him and the brothers in the play had this energetic connection while he kept turning to me and looking at me like, what the hell are you doing? Why are you? And it was Sam being angry at me for not giving him the crown, but it was perfect for us as brothers in the play. And then finally, when everybody was supposed to leave, I didn't leave. I just stayed. And the two of us were alone on stage. And I walked over to Sam and handed him the crown. And he gave me his hand and we shook hands and I walked off. And it, the director said it was a perfect solution to, first of all, why Antonio is still there. And secondly, it continued this connection between the brothers mm. in the So a lot of people thought I was very smart. I wasn't smart. I was just a, an unhappy actor mm -hmm. who decided to etude it. And instead of do what I was supposed to do, I was directed to hand him the crown. I did what I wanted to do, which was stepped away mm -hmm. and didn't give him the crown. That's just an A2. That's just following my, my, my impulse was to move away. So I did, and it changed the scene. Etudes are wonderful for moments in any creative thing, film, TV, theater. If you're having a problem with a scene, do an etude. You'll find answers. If you can't figure out a, a troublesome moment, play with it. Allow it to, 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 to really go where your instincts take you. And that's something that wasn't written in the play. Nope, that was no. what we call the subtext. And that's what yeah. active analysis brings into the surface. Is that correct? The actor's rough draft. Oh, what an amazing moment. Uh, I have another question here. Uh, You've clearly done a lot of film and TV. Uh, do you ever etude scenes or long text in movies and TV? How do you approach it when it's different from when it's different from the theater? I always do it. I do it for film, TV. Um, I play a lot of authority figures who just wear suits and sit in chairs and give orders. <laughs> And so I always etude my scenes before I go to film and I will do them silently. I will do them with my keywords and my key phrases. I will do them in my own words. I will do them completely wide open and running around the room and doing my expressive gestures. And then when I go in and do it on set, sitting in a chair at the desk, a lot of that work that I've done, the invisible work, Declan Donnellan calls it, is there it changes the scene. It's, it's, it's the actor's invisible work that the audience doesn't see, but it changes the energetic feeling of the scene. So etudes allow, and they're great for auditions. You, you, you're given a couple of pages to learn overnight. 
And instead of just learning the lines and going in, if you do the etudes, you go into that room with a deeper understanding of what you're trying to create. Uh, and I have uh, the last question from uh, our listeners is uh, usually an actor finds more in a specific etude, meaning one, two, 2.53. What's your go-to etude when you want to find something? I do them all, but I think for me, the one that's the most important is the first one mm -hmm. because it forces me to use my body, mm. only my body, to put the scene into my body. And that's very I important. Find, I often found when I was working before that I never could figure out, I would stand up after a week or two at the table just feeling so out of my body and carrying a script for another week. I, I never could... It was very difficult for me to find the body of a character before. Now I find it very difficult. Well, uh, we've end, We've gotten to the end of our episode. Uh, I want to thank you, Cotter, for taking your time. Thanks, uh, Diego. For being here and talking about this not-so-known craft. Hopefully, in the next five to ten years, like Cotter said, it would be an, something more normal. Uh So thank you, Cotter, for being here tonight. Uh, thanks to all the listeners. Uh, I really, really appreciate it. Uh, this is Cotter Smith talking about active analysis. Next week, I'll have a very, very special guest as well. And we're going to talk about Meisner. Huh. We'll see. Thank you, Cotter, again. And thank you, everyone, for listening. See you next week. Thanks, Diego.